This is Kate Massey. A quick note on our show this week. We have a bonus segment, six or seven minutes after the show that goes into a little more detail on the forecasting discussion we were having in the first half. We were trying to explain it to ourselves and we thought, well, we might as well share that explanation out for any of you who are especially statistically inclined or wanted a little more clarity after the first half. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew. Adi Weiner from his office, Eric Bradlow from his office, and Shane from a new location we've not seen. I believe that's Germany. I believe that's Germany. And a little bit later in the evening, Shane and Adi are already cutting up in fine form here at the top of the show. Glad you guys have joined us. Appreciate your listening. You can follow us in the off times. This show is recorded on Tuesday afternoon. We'll go up Wednesday morning. SiriusXM will replay it a few times. We'll get the podcast up also. If you're not listening, you can follow us on Twitter. At WMoneyBall is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics. We love to hear from you. We'll take your praise. We'll take your criticism. We'll take your suggestions. At WMoneyBall is the easiest way to reach us. Format today, as usual, open lines in this first half hour, and then we'll have a guest in the second half hour. Tom Bliss is our guest in the second half hour. We're going to talk NFL analytics with a man who's on the inside data scientist at the NFL with an interesting public facing job as well. And he's got a great Twitter account. Good for football analytics in the second half of the show. Guys, it's hard not to start today with the news of the day. It exploded last night and ran instantly through all corners of the internet that this $700 million contract that Otani signed with the Dodgers, which itself was already the biggest news of the week is almost entirely deferred. And so it can't be a business school, not have a position. And Otani's deferring $680 million of his $700 million to begin payment in like year 11 or something. So first, let's get your reaction. Y'all are Major League Baseball people, even after, well, we'll talk about Yankees and Soto in a second, but Otani to the Dodgers and Otani deferring the vast majority of his income into years 11 through 20. What are y'all's thoughts? Well, I mean, the original observation was it's just an incredible large amount of money. But when you realize the deferral, it brings it down to a net present value that's a lot lower. I saw an interesting uh, Twitter post that said it's about $440 million in, in, in present value. But of course, I've got to remind our listeners, Audie, that there's no interest, unlike Bobby Bonilla Day. That's the big reason as well. Oh, oh so but, but how do I compare that to, say, judges contract? Or, or is, it would be great if we could do put all these contracts at apples to apples. Well, it's no problem. Well, can, you just, you just, you can either. No, I, I know it theoretically net, I think it's not that hard. The net present value. Yeah. But I don't know what those are. So what, what is, what is Trout's contract in, in, in NPV? Um, do you know that number? What is Judge's contract? Um, because the time that it's signed. You want, you just want apples to apples that on sign. Yeah. I mean, it sounded like a huge amount. It sounded like they were basically signing two players. Two all-stars, at, you know, the, the, one of the best hitters and one of the best pitchers. And the real question is, is that really the case, right? Um, because of injury risk, they both go out. It's not like independent plays, right? If, if, if the, the hitter gets injured, probably the pitcher's down too, right? Same person. Um, also, we have a limitation. He's gonna pick, he can't pitch more than six every sixth day. Um, that's, that's, so we really can't accumulate. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. It just the original amount seemed huge, but now that with the deferral, it seems like it's about right. I was just wondering. I'm just surprised this doesn't violate any rules. Like not rules, but like in the NFL, if you did that, they would take the total sum and divide by the number of years. Like in the NFL, you can't give you know I don't know. Let's give uh, Patrick Mahomes a 50-year contract. At $200,000 a year, whatever the league minimum is, a million dollars a year for someone with his, and just spread it out. You can't do that. And then the minute he actually retired or something, then the, the all part of it would future value. So it's not that it wasn't allowed. I'm just saying the way it counts against the cap. Is, but there's no cap. No, but there's a, there is a, there's a luxury threshold. Sure. There is. And so this to me is remarkable that this was. I mean, it's not it's not saying there's anything illegal about it. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm just saying it's a strange contract format that you're allowing. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, my reading, I've read a couple of things. I think it wouldn't have been allowed under the previous collective bargaining agreement. This is something that kind of is basically relatively new, relatively unprecedented, obviously. I think it's brilliant. I, I mean, I think it's brilliant from both perspectives. From the team perspective, obviously, you know, they get to kind of, main, you know, get Shohei, Otani, and field a very competitive team around him. They're not really constrained in the present when he's actually on the team. And then, you know, from Otani's perspective, it's brilliant too. He's, I mean, while you're a superstar, you don't need that much, you know, he's going to probably be making like 60, 70 million a year right now just for merchandising. And then once he retires, his actual salary money kicks in. Actually, never mind my comment because Matt, our producer, just put in the box. So apparently the the MLB is smarter than I thought. They've computed the NPV of his contract at 461. And they're going to count it as $46 million yeah. towards the luxury cap. Oh, so never mind. So they figured out that you could obviously subvert this. Why, you know, why not have him pay you $20 million a year then and count that negative $20 million towards the luxury cap? So, okay, so the NFL has realized this. So y'all give us a little context because Adi was just saying, you know, 800 sounds extraordinary and 400 sounds about right. But you know, in what world is 400 like not a notable uh, contract value. So just give me a couple of uh, context pieces. One is what did the Yankees just sign Soto for? And I want to hear y'all's reactions to Soto as well. And what was Trout's the, the big contract? Or give us a give us a Phillies contract from last year. That give us some other I mean, the top the, kind of the top top sort of five hitter top five pitchers are in like the 40, 45 million range. So he's basic right. Is, am I wrong? But that's yeah, about, about right. That's yes. about right right now. Um, I mean, I think judge judge prior to this was the record, I think, in terms of AAV. Um, yeah, we're here. Trey, Trey Turner, Trey Turner, Philly shortstop, good stick, 300 million over 11 years. And so way, that's, that's categorically different. Yeah, the Yankees haven't signed Soto to an extension. They offered him $400 million and he turned it down. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's a Boris client. He doesn't, uh, Boris doesn't do extensions. Right. They so, traded for a rental. And hope he enjoys himself enough in New York, and he probably will to uh, to side with them when he signs. Uh, as well, what, a did, what is he? What are the Padres? What were the Padres playing him? And now the oh, no, I think it's arbitration. So I think he was supposed to get about thirty three million in arbitration. Yeah, thirty three. Okay, so now we have some some context on numbers. Let's set those aside. How do you feel as Yankees about the Reynolds Shane's derogatory characterization, renting Soto for a year? Yeah. No. I, Not think, I, I, I think it's a great deal for the Yankees, quite honestly. I think it gets a, a jump on him on a, a contract, 33 million. It's about time the Yankees spend some money, you know, um, and it cleans up an outfield that needs it. Now, they did give up. I thought they gave up a couple of good pitchers, but they weren't stars. And um, I think there'll be other pitchers to re- I think the, the replacement value of those pitchers um, isn't uh, makes the trade, I think, a worthwhile trade for the Yankees. Okay. I was also just going to build on what Audie was saying. I think. Let's imagine the Yankees, it's not hard to imagine, that they're a better team with Soto on it, okay? At some point, that could influence other players to want to come to the Yankees, and also potentially at a lower price. I mean, in some sense, if you want to be on a winning team, why not come to the Yankees? I'm just saying, Shane, We have Yankees haven't won a World Series. They've won one World Series in 23 years. If I wanted to go to a winning team right now, it's not obvious of all the teams I would pick, given the scrutiny and everything else, that the, I'll call it the ratio of dollars to angst that the Yankees are the best call. Maybe if Soto helps now bring you over the top, now all of a sudden you know, I'll make it up. A player says, I'll take $28 million a year as opposed to 33 to be with the Yankees if the Yankees are actually going to win the World Series. I'm just commenting there could be collateral value that Soto could have that could make even signing him to a – I could say the same with Otani and the Dodgers, although they've been winning. You could say, you know what, his 461 could end up providing economic value to other players. I mean, I, I only laugh. No, I mean, I, I actually agree that success – Breed success, and and I'm you know so, Soto making the Yankees better will obviously makes the Yankees more attractive. Just the the thought that player, I mean historically, do players go to the Yankees for less money because they? I mean the Yankees are always the ones paying the most money. That's that's you know, and, and I mean the Yankees don't have to. I mean I don't understand why the Yankees like would what 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 does a hometown discount even like give the Yankees? I mean. Guys, let's talk about a sport that's actually taking place right now, and that's the NBA. 
So we've just finished up the first ever of these in-season tournaments, the Lakers, which has to be kind of, you know, one of the most desirable teams for the NBA to see win this thing, beat the Pacers in this first ever. It seemed like the reports were that the players were more into it. It seemed successful from an on-the-court basis, but the TV ratings apparently are pretty much what the TV ratings have been. And so it's not clear what how they're using it, how, what their measures of success are. But what were your reactions? Any observations? Did you care differently because of this thing? I, I care differently. I think the part that they brought up, which was valuable, was is that nobody really pays that much attention to basketball right now. Uh, usually, you know, it's the it's the really the low period in basketball. So you've brought maybe a little more attention to the sport during a period that's not that, you know, exciting. Um, you didn't really have to play any extra games. I guess the Lakers and Pacers are now playing an 83rd game that doesn't count towards their record. So marginally so. Um, I don't know. LeBron's put I mean, Lakers apparently are putting up a banner, which I was shocked that they're putting up a banner for this. But uh, they are. Um, yeah, to me, it was exciting. And, and look, this is my prediction as well. And I think, you know, Shane, you would agree with the following, since you're also a big NBA guy. In one game, one game, you would take LeBron over, I mean, I don't want to say almost anybody, but he doesn't have to win you a seven-game series. Yeah, he just right. has to win you one single game. And he was able to do that. And he was able to do that four times. It, it's no series. There's no adjustment. He just you, LeBron beats you in one game. So I, I thought that was exciting. And I, I like the I, I like that they're experimenting. And I honestly, I think I mean, I guess I'm not particularly surprised the TV rate ratings. I, I would personally, I would advocate them being kind of paid. I think you, you're going to need a few years for the you know the kind of word of this to kind of build up and interest people's consciousness. I mean, I I kind of you know, was only made aware of it through you guys basically this year. And so I think it's going it, to, you're going to need some years for it to kind of, I, I think, increase in sort of the, the way, Shane, consciousness. But I think it's a fantastic idea. Wouldn't, I hope they have the patience with it. Yeah, I was going to say, let me ask you a question, Shane. Let's imagine, forget you're LeBron and you've got almost infinite money. If you're making a good, very good salary in the NBA, let's say three, four million a year, someone said you have a chance to make a 15% bonus. Right now, if I told you, you could have a 15% bonus, you'd be like, this has sounded pretty interesting. That $500,000 was not chump change to a number of those players on the Lakers. I mean, there's a bunch of players on the Lakers that are making $2 million, $3 million a year or less. They just made $500,000 each for winning this tournament. Not bad. Good perspective. We, it's compared to the baseball money we were just talking about. It's easy to lose track of that perspective, but you're right, especially down the down the roster, down the roster. That's not nothing, um, guys. Let's talk about the NFL. We are really getting into the interesting part of the season now, and I think this past weekend had you know some of the best storylines, more storylines it seems to me than almost any weekend of the year anything in particular jump out to you i can tell you that i sure didn't enjoy the ravens with a 76 yard walk-off punt return i have watched so many stressful painful root canal ravens games that end up with pain i didn't know what to do with myself on the winning side of this thing yeah they, they i mean for a fairly dominant team they never seem to make it look no. easy, those ravens there's 50 percent. it's painful <laughs> Um, yeah, but what's your, you know, there are lots to choose from here. Did you see that, the, that the Minnesota wild won three, nothing also same near the same day that the Vikings, Vikings beat the Raiders, you said the, the wild, wild. what's that? The Vikings. No, no, no. No, I the mean, wild. <laughs> same hockey, hockey score, same as. Oh, 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 I was like, what's he? Oh, okay. Three, oh. Three pretty rare, pretty rare, but notable. <laughs> and honestly. Well, what what a what a great database exercise to ask a student to try and figure out all the times where somehow like a hockey score is matched to football, you know, in history. But right. I, I doubt right. I doubt right. it's happened more than a couple but, times. That's pretty interesting. Let, let's talk about. I'd be very interested. I don't know. You haven't talked about it much this season. I don't know if you're still running the Massey Peabody Power Rankings and stuff, or you guys are just using an aggregator and then using the simulator. I forget the name of the simulator website that you guys have been talking about, but. How far have the Eagles fallen in two weeks? Like, if you had to guess using your history of fitting power rankings, Kate, I think one two weeks ago before playing the um, the Cowboys and the Niners, the Niners and the Cowboys, and the Eagles had to be number one or close to number one in most teams' power rankings. But it's now- a great it's a great great question, Eric. But I'm going to stop you there and push you there. I don't know exactly. We are still running it as part of unabated, but unabated. I'm I'm not following it that closely right now. But I'm going to guess that Philadelphia may not have been number one. It's one of those things where their record 
was probably outpacing their actual on on field, you know, play by play. I think that was more or less the rhetoric. I could be a little wrong on that, but it wouldn't have surprised me if they were two or three. But you're asking the question, how much can you drop in a couple of weeks, especially with a couple of pretty good beatdowns? Um, I don't if I, I we should look at it. I can look at it, but if I had to guess, I would say a few spots anyway. I mean, there's enough. It really comes down to how much competition is around you. How thick is that right tail? And I, it, it seems pretty thick this season. And so I, I imagine they're down to five. I, I'm going to guess they drop from two or three to. But even in terms of points, any guys guess what it would be? Cade would it be two or three points. Could it be that much? Could they go from a plus eight to a plus five? Three seems like a lot. I'm, I'm going to say no, but um, it's a it's a great question. I'm going to go more like two. And I mean, you know, in the NFC, that I, I mean, yeah, they they a they got. They got beat down well, in two weeks, but by two elite teams. Like you know, I mean, That's good drop point. them from like one in the NFC down to three, but you'd you wouldn't no, drop no, them further Shane, than no. that, would you? Power rankings all across all thirty-two, so that you got to deal with the AFC teams up there as well. We're not talking about seeds. Sure, just like, okay, but, yeah. Where are we? Different question, Shane. If I had asked you two weeks ago, what's the probability the Eagles might go to the Super Bowl? I think people would have said. I don't know, maybe as even if they were using more of a power rank, maybe people were overinflating it at 10 and 1, but you probably would have said somewhere around, I don't know, let's call it 25 to 30 percent. Let's put equal probability on them, maybe San Francisco, maybe Dallas, all being roughly equal or something like that. But now you'd have to put their probability, for me, significantly lower than the 49ers or the Cowboys. And not just because they got beaten by them. It has nothing to do with that. It, yes, it has something to do with it, but it's just the, mag- because of the buy, right? Yeah, the buy as well. Yeah, good point. No, no, not just the buy. I would lower it from the buy as well as the fact that my my perception of their ability in the right tail to beat the other two NFC teams in the right tail is lower than it was just two weeks ago. And to beat them both, potentially. Yes, no, and I, I think that's really the buy, like kind of getting out of that buy spot means that they have to go through pro- – not not only do you lose the buy and therefore you have to play an extra game, but they – you know, you have to probably go through both those teams. I will point out, though, that actually, similar to last year, there might be some advantage to actually not winning the NFC East division because they're going to be probably the top wildcard team, and they're going to play whoever is the winner, quote-unquote, of the NFC South. Now, I knew you, you were know, they're lined up the to NFC do that. South. Let me just say, right now, I'm not sure who's got a higher probability to win their division. Do you know the answer? The uh, Cowboys, sorry, the uh, Eagles or the Bucks? I might rather be the Bucks. Or, I think the Bucks have a better chance to win the NFC South than the Eagles do to win the NFC East right now. I didn't say go anywhere in the playoffs. I just said yeah. to win the division. Yeah. I just say that that you know you get to play. I mean, if you if you have the bad luck of losing the NFC East, you get to play the Bucks or whoever wins. Yeah, the and NFC then you get South. to play and a that's, two. That's about play, the closest thing you could have to a buy. That's and not then a you buy. get to play a two week rested San Francisco team, probably which or which may not be any gift, but good yeah. point, well taken. We have a few big games coming up this weekend. I I I I commented the Saturday games were putrid, and I think Shane corrects me and says Broncos Lions. I'm sorry, I'm have, I'm not a, I'm not used to being uh, excited about Broncos Lions, but sure, sure, playoff consequences Saturday I mean, Sunday rather. As you roll into mid afternoon, we get Dallas at Buffalo, which is oh. fantastic. I love that Buffalo got by the Chiefs. Baltimore Jacksonville, which is essentially a, you know a, a real competition for the buy in the AFC. That's Sunday night football, and then Philadelphia at Seattle. Philadelphia keeps on getting these high profile games. They are favorites going across the country, but it's a fun time. It's a fun time of year. Quick question for you, little little problem set for you. There was an article this past week on the Athletic ranking NFL owners by their lifetime one loss record. And this is a really interesting thing for us because these guys have very different tenures. Imagine Jerry Jones, who I don't know, is at 30 plus years now versus say a Josh Harris, who's in his first season. And you're going to take all 32. You're going to say, Hey, what matters is their record. And of course other things might matter, but ultimately that is what matters. And they're going to rank them. They did. They just ranked them that way. We're always doing this kind of exercise because it's just good forecasting practice to shrink these kinds of rankings when you're trying to get a real bead on the truth. What you and you might what's the truth here? Well, 
Like, what do you predict going forward is maybe the way to think about this. You've got these records. Fine. That's the past. How should we adjust for sample size? Essentially, we do this all the time at the beginning of the baseball season. We'll play baseball for a month and we'll say, okay, guys, this is what the records of these teams look like. What do we project they're going to be at the end of the season? And you're always shrinking, bringing down the teams that are really killing it with a small sample and bringing up the teams that are really dragging behind with a small sample. And we're always, the question's always, how do you shrink? And it's often the question of, okay, we're going to put, we're going to shrink it to 500, but then how much do we pull them? We're always questions like, how much do we pull them? Everybody's got some thoughts. Let's hear quickly what you're going to do with this exercise. All right, let me, let me jump in first because I actually cover this in my class, my capstone class. If you go to Penn and you can take it, um, there's a, a couple of approaches. First of all, I'll point out straight away, it doesn't gonna, not going to change the order. So shrinkage is going to keep everybody from the same order they're in from top to bottom. It's just going to push everybody together. I don't oh, agree no. with that at all. That's not right. No, no, it can do that. That can do that. I can do that right if you have different sample sizes. Then the people yes. who have very low. Yeah, that's right. That's, well, that's right. I'm imagining all the owners have, all, all the owners have have the same. They don't. Some of them have very few, and so you're going to shrink them all. There's there's a, there's a, a good way to do this, which is called empirical bays. And, uh, and it, it essentially, it just works. It looks at how many observations you have, and it, it treats that as a binomial. Then it looks at the total spread in the win-loss percentages after, ex, after factoring out the binomial, and it does that mathematically. And then what's residual is kind of the spread, the natural spread in quality. If there's anything left at all, by the way, it could be almost nothing. Um, and, then, and, then that figures, that, and then that helps you figure out how much to shrink. Okay, Adi, that was indecipherable in this quick period of time. It sounds Absolutely. important, and I, I need to understand it even, but we can't cover that sophisticated no method in this <laughs> quick talk. We, what we know, It's good to know that there is one. I, I would have thought empirical base, I, I would just do straight up empirical and say, let me get a track record of all these guys in the past and ask what size uh, prior do I need to, in, to maximize, to optimize my predictions. So if I, it's like in the past, that's so some empirical version like that was is how I, I would have approached it, but y'all have theoretical ways as well. Eric. No, no. I was just gonna say the two approaches I thought of when you asked the question, one was Adi's, which is the standard approach, which is we think of it as a binomial, which is the observed games. The prior is classically this is a classic beta binomial model. I'm gonna put a prior on the probability, right? How many games, how many wins and losses am I gonna put in the prior? One way to do it is to put enough wins and losses in the prior that fit the empirical distribution. That's what empirical Bayes does. The way I would probably do it in a modern world of machine learning is what you suggested, Cade. I would have an out-of-sample validation period and choose the number of wins and losses in the prior that maximizes my ability to predict this out-of-sample data. Those would have been the two approaches I would have picked. Both are valid and both are fascinating and interesting to me. So yeah, go ahead, Shane, please. I was going to say, that's probably the right move is to do this kind of empirically without a sample validation. I kind of think, you know, if one was to create more of a subjective prior, like the way I was kind of thinking about this is I'm thinking as an owner, you take over a terrible team. How long, like through your, I guess, your guidance actions, how long does it take to turn that organization over? Probably three, four, five seasons, something like that, really? To get rid of, you know, all the bad players, all the bad coaches, et cetera. And so, like, you know, I would be tempted to add maybe four or five seasons worth of, you know, like it, it. you know, and I it would stand- be interesting to see what the cross-validated kind of how many cross-validated games, whether that would be about three or four seasons worth. I stand corrected. I, I, now, from this point forward, I have three approaches. I like adding Shane's to my pile, too. Well, I think it's perfectly fine. And this is why we talk about this is to cultivate better intuitions about it. We want people to shrink these rankings all the time when they're making performance evaluations, when they're making predictions. But the question is always how much to shrink. And one, I think about this, the, the way to think about the prior is, I think I use the term fictitious sample size, which is a decision science term. It's basically saying one way to think about it. If you say, I'm going to put 10 years worth of data in there in my prior. I'm I'm going to I'm going to count I'm going to add 10 years of 500 performance to regress everybody back. I'm basically saying after I've seen this owner 10 years, I put equal weight on him being a five her being a 500 owner or um the record that I've observed. I'm going to equally weight that what they've observed and the and a 500 after 10 years. That's what you're saying when you put in that prior in when you think of it as a sample size. Audi I want to say two things. First of all, um, the cross-validation approach that Eric is uh, 
is promoting is has a bit of a problem because we don't have that much data, right? And so if we if we if we cut down on that, it's gonna be hard to do it. And secondly, the empirical base is supposed to tell you how much to shrink. It, it should calculate that for you, and it's uh, without having to uh, uh, have a lot of data. It, 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 that's the that's what that's what it's designed to do. If you believe in the technique, it should work. Well, well, the, what we what I always tell our students is do it multiple ways, and hopefully, you know, we, we, we'll we'll find out the weaknesses and strengths of each. All right, we need to do. We, we always want to come back to this because we think it's something people ought to be doing more often. On the way out, let's talk briefly about college football. We've got the beginning of bowl season, guys. We have a bunch of games on Saturday. Um, six FBS games on Saturday. One of the downsides of bowls this year is that a lot of folks are portaling, a lot of quarterbacks are portaling, and takes a lot of fun out of it. I want to point people to the Celebration Bowl because it's probably one with the fewest portal players. This is the HBCU games, the Meek Champ versus the Swag Champ this year, Howard versus Florida A&M, 12 o'clock on Saturday, and halftime in particular. I'm going to guess the halftime of that game is the peak college football experience of the weekend, at least ex ante. But let's note, bowl games get underway Saturday that time of year. All right, guys, we've got another half of Wharton Moneyball to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second half of Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second half hour, our guest segment, typically these days, and it is this week, along with the whole crew, Shane, Adi, Eric, and Cade here, we have Tom Bliss. Tom is joining us from New York. Tom works for the NFL. You may know him from his Twitter account, Data with Bliss, a fantastic follow for all things football analytics. He is a first-time guest of ours. We follow him. We love his work, but we haven't had a chance to talk to him yet. So glad to meet you, Tom. Thanks for making time with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be on uh, the show. Well, let's hear more about your work and your background. It's, you're one of these people who just kind of emerged on the landscape and making contributions in the in the in the uh, in the world of football analytics. We don't really know much about you. We know you're a football operations data scientist at the NFL. I'm always kind of entertained that they have someone from the inside kicking out the analyses that you kick out because. It, it, there's no holes barred in some sense. I mean, you're kind of able to put out there whatever is interesting to you, whether or not, you know, it's like totally politically correct, if you will, football politically correct. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a nice thing, but how did you get into this position? What's your background and what's your relationship there to Michael Lopez? Michael's a longtime friend of the show. We talk to him often. I, I gather that you're in the same group, but just tell us a little bit about where you are and how you arrived in that spot. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, First of all, yeah, it, one thing that I really enjoy about working at the league office um, is the fact that I can sort of publish and, and, and post some, some personal things that I'm interested in that, that tie to football. Uh, I, I'm not posting everything that we're working on, um, uh, but, yeah, I think it, it's cool that we get to share some of what we, we do behind the curtain. But, yeah, so I um, have worked at the NFL league office for about four years now. Um, I grew up in Oakland, California. I sort of fell in love with football, uh, mostly because of my, at the time, hometown team, the Oakland Raiders. Um, that, that got me really interested in the NFL. Um, and I had been a big fan and had, had gone to games since I was um, less than five years old. Um, from, uh, like, as I sort of grew up, I, I, I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison. I got a degree in physics. Um, I always had a math brain. I always was interested in, in math, and, and that's kind of what got me to, to want to study data science, which, which I did at Columbia for my master's. Um, from there, I interned at the NFL League office um, and then had an opportunity to return. And now I'm here working full-time, and I, I absolutely love it. Um, football is my biggest passion. Um, and, I mean, I'm also always a big math and statistics nerd, so – it really worked out that this opportunity came together and um, I work directly with Michael Lopez, who is also great um, and a great person to work with. And yeah, I'm sure all you know that. Um, and basically my, my role, my, my focus is, is serving the football operations um, group um, in at the NFL league office. It's, it's 
uh, obviously I do some things externally facing, but a lot of what I work is on is um, internal. So um, things relating to rule changes, things relating to the NFL schedule. Um, and um, I, I work with football operations trying to make the game as competitive, as fast, as um, well officiated, as, as best as possible and make it the, the greatest sport in the world. Okay, Tom, does, does that mean that you're failing at your job because there was a three to nothing game this last weekend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, this, this year has been much lower scoring than, 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 than other seasons. Um, yeah, that I, I, I can say um, as a football fan, a three to nothing game is um, not necessarily the, the best um NFL content that that has ever been out there. Well, not not only was it three to nothing on your on your on your watch, but it involved your beloved Raiders as well. So I think I think we've heard enough from Bliss. I think we know what that's all about. <laughs> well, listen, can you give us some insight? So we 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 know that we get the external view. You said you talk about the internal view. Y'all must be doing work on what is behind the lower scores. How you, you it, how. How systemic is it? Because anecdotally, it jumps out, but I haven't been doing the big numbers. And then to what extent does the league bother with that? And to the extent that y'all have bothered with it, what can you tell us about why scoring is down, if it is down? Absolutely. Yeah, well, well, scoring um, really the last two years ha- has been down um, from uh, before. Like the, Currently, our, our average points per game is 43.4. Um put that in reference in 2020, which was our highest scoring year, uh, partially because of the pandemic and lack of home advantage, potentially disadvantaging um, the away teams. We were about 49.3 points, but so, so we're, we're six points down from, from just uh, three years ago. And, and even pre pandemic um, 2019, it was like around 45. So um, scoring is definitely down. Um, we monitor this. This is something that the league um, follows very closely. Uh, I think a lot of the, the, the maybe the, the main causes, um, one, punting um, is at an all-time high. Um, punters have improved, um, and, and punt net yards is about as high as it's been in, in quite a long time. Um, additionally, I think teams' offenses have, have been playing more conservatively, and I think that, that probably ties somewhat to how, how defenses are playing, but um, we're, we're having a lot more passes behind the line of scrimmage, a lot less p- deep passes, um, fewer interceptions, which I, I suppose is generally that, that might not necessarily be a good thing for scoring because if you throw an interception um, on your side of the field, that might put the opposing team in position to score. Um, QBs are rushing more, um, which I guess I don't know if that necessarily hurts scoring, but that, that's just something else that, that that we were monitoring that, that that's interesting. Um, and I mean, I guess with, with all this third and fourth and medium and long conversion rates are, are, are way down. Um, so it, it's obviously never just one thing when, whenever you're solving a data problem, but I think with scoring, it's, it's, it's a lot of things. And I think there's a lot of long drives. Um, and uh, as opposed to like, there are less drives per game and, yeah, and obviously another part of it is we've, we've had some significant QB injuries this year, too, right. um, which uh, can tie to it. Man, by the yeah, time- I mean, that was, by- was going to be my point, is that I, it seems like maybe two-thirds of the teams are on their backup quarterback at this point. So I, I guess <laughs> putting that in the form of a question, is, is it true that you know we're seeing unprecedented levels, I guess, of uh, quarterback replacement or quarterback injury and why is that, given that obviously the league's made so many moves over the last few years to try and improve the safety of quarterbacks? Yeah, the, the second part's a, r- a really difficult question. I, I wouldn't say my, my focus is on the health and safety, but I, I will say I, I, I don't have the number offhand, but I think since 2017, we, we were probably have, have, have the, the most amount of like sort of backup quarterbacks starting. I, I know, um, well, 2020 and 2021, we, we had a lot of, backups just a lot of quarterbacks play generally that was partially due to the pandemic but ignoring those years i'm assuming we're, we're, we've got to be pretty high and, and uh, yeah i think um definitely um that, that that has an effect on scoring yeah so tom i wanted to ask you 
How do you go as someone that's, you know, trained in, you know, as you said, math to start with physics and then data science, how do you go from, I'll call it predictive models to policy? Because I would imagine that part of what you do at the NFL is to come up with policies. Like imagine you guys wanted to increase scoring. Well, there's an infinite number of things you could do. You have models that can give you predictions and maybe even run counterfactuals would say, this is what would happen if we were to do this. But how do you do that? Because that's what many of our listeners want to do. They want to take statistical models and translate it into policies that their firm is going to do better. Yeah, no, um, that's a great question. And I I have an example. It might not necessarily tie to scoring, but I think this is something that everyone would would find interesting. But um, I'm sure everyone remembers the, the Bills, Chiefs, overtime, uh, game in, in 2021, which which sort of um, got the conversation on a potential revised overtime. Um, so the, the the overtime rule, which which is the new one, prior prior to prior prior to the uh, 2021 uh, sort of change, um, overtime rule was if the in, in the postseason if the first team gets the ball and scores a touchdown they win. If they score a field goal, the other team has a chance. Um, and if they if they don't score. Um, then it's, it's sudden death. Um, so the new rule change, which was uh, made uh, immediately after the 2021 season um, for the 2022 postseason, although it, it didn't necessarily, uh, like, we, we didn't see any postseason overtime games last year, unfortunately, so we didn't get to see it in action. But um, the, the new rule is now if, team, if the first team scores a touchdown, the second team has an opportunity to match that score and after that, then we go to sudden death as opposed to a team being able to just score touchdown and ending it. Um, we were very much involved in, in that rule change. Um, and what we did was, um, and it was, it was an interesting problem because we wanted to sort of create a rule um, that describes, uh, like, to, to, like create a, a new sort of state in the game, let's say, that we had never seen before where a team needs to score a touchdown, and if they turn the ball over, um, they lose immediately. Um, even, like, like just the second the, the ball's intercepted, the game is over, they lose. Um, and they have infinite time. So it's, it's a situation that doesn't necessarily exist. Um, so what we had to do was we, we were trying to think about places where it was very similar. Um, so, for example, um, when there's about five minutes left and a team is down four to eight points, it's similar in the sense like, all right, if they don't score a touchdown, they lose. And, and it's not like they have 30 seconds left where uh, you're, you're maybe limited in what types of plays you can call. Uh, but uh, it, like we, 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 we sort of sampled from a distribution of plays in that situation down four to eight um, with a five or, or less minutes left. And we simulated what this new overtime would look like. And what we did was we said for the 20% of games, which are were were previously won just by scoring a touchdown on the first drive, we're able to take that 20% and think about, all right, how how often will that team match? Um, And then we also have to put our football hats on and think about from a strategy perspective, if that team matches, are they really going to kick the ball off to the, the opposing team? Because in most cases, if you, if you just allowed a touchdown and you just went down and scored a touchdown, um, especially um, like, like you're, you're, you're probably thinking about just going for two and ending the game there as opposed to kicking the ball off and, and giving the opposing team an opportunity to just kick a field goal to win the game. Um, so that's another thing we had to consider. So um, with, with all of that, we, we have to think about the competitive equity, um, whether or not we're actually making the, the, the game more 50-50. I mean, the, the main reason we wanted to change it was there was a feeling that, Scoring that that the the Chiefs had just sort of won it off the coin toss. Uh, the Bills and the Chiefs were both really strong offenses. They both have very good quarterbacks. Um, there was a feeling that you know whoever got the ball first would have won, and, and th- that's what happened. So um, let me ask. Um, we, we have to think about. Let me ask you a couple of questions. So one clarifying question: It's the it's the case that it for, is it not the case that formerly a field goal would win the game, and now. Is it isn't it the case that if that if you touch, if you score a touchdown with the, with the first possession you do win the game a touchdown wins the game does it not? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, but the and, difference and, is that sorry, you no longer make... can you no longer can win the game with the field goal, and that's what was the. Do I have that right? No, no, no. So um, 
from oh the playoffs prior to the 2011 season um it was sudden death then 2012 to 2020 to till 2022 um we had this system where a field goal will tie it and the other team has an opportunity to match a touchdown will win it um uh-huh. so if the first team goes down scores a touchdown they win if, a fir- if the first team goes down scores a field goal the other team actually has an opportunity to kick a field goal as well um and then it goes. I actually didn't down. know this, Tom. Thanks uh, for thanks for educating me. I thought so. The yeah. oh, just to be clear, the playoff rules are different than the regular season rules, where that's a what yeah. would end a regular season game, but not a playoff game. That is correct. That is correct. Okay. So, so Adi's trying to jump in. I've got some follow up as well, but Adi, please. Yeah, it seems to me that there's a couple of things working here that 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 uh, are either working on opposite sides or or, or then I'm, then I'm confused about one. One is, of course, you really want to make it 50 50. You don't want to have it one. one the person who wins the to- coin toss have a severe advantage. And that was the old system. The first the, the first mover had a big advantage. I thought it. I thought that when, when the current system it kind of leveled it out. It was 50-50. I don't know if that's actually known or that's just observational. And my, my, my second thing is the playoffs. Why don't you just play a full quarter? What's with the overtime sudden death stuff? Just play a, a, a some fixed amount of time until whoever wins. And then if there's an, if that doesn't happen, do it again. I don't know, like other sports. What, is that impossible for football? Or it's just like, it seems like we want more action, more, more longer games seems good. Is that not Yeah, possible? no, um, well, no, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I mean, to answer your, your second question, the, the primary concern with just playing a quarter is um, part of it is, is injury and, and pace of play. Every NFL play, there's a chance for an injury. And if you play a full quarter, that's, you're, you're, you're just increasing that drastically versus an, a system in which the game can, can end at just based on what happens in the game. Um, and even a quarter might not necessarily be the most even system just because team A gets the ball first, scores the touchdown, team B gets the ball. Now team A is getting the ball back with, let's say, five minutes left, and they have a good chance to get the last possession. So even just playing a quarter won't be the most even. And um, to answer the first question, the, the new system is better. Um, it's closer to 50-50 then, um, or at least that's what we project. We, we obviously haven't seen it in, in the playoffs yet. Um, and, and to, like, I, I guess to be clear, there's three systems. Uh, there's the sudden death system, which was pre 2011. There's the system in which a field goal ties it, um, a, 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 a touchdown wins it, a field goal ties it. And then there's the, the postseason system, which is 2022 to present, where, which is different than the regular season, where a touchdown, can't win it. Um, the the other team has an opportunity to win. Each of these systems, I think, is getting closer to 50-50, but it's, it's still not 50-50. Um, the, the issue is still um, team A scores a touchdown or a field goal. Team B scores a touchdown or a field goal. Now team A gets the ball back, sudden death. And mm. um, it's still an advantage for team A. Um, so it, it's difficult. There isn't and, – and there are, there were a lot of proposals uh, for overtime especially after the, that Bills-Chiefs game, there isn't really a, a perfect system that makes it totally even uh, just because of, of the nature of the sport where one team gets a chance, the other team gets a chance. Um, of course. Maybe you could argue the college football, but then there's the first mover's advantage. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, what's what's neat about the story, though, is that you guys are involved in the discussion, that there, it's a data-informed discussion. It's not just strictly opinions and politics which in many cases it would be. So that just hearing the fact that y'all are involved and they're using simulations and y'all are trying to project to make this as fair as possible is cool. Let's talk about a different thing that you kick out. You you have a, you maintain an NFL luck dashboard. And one of the things yeah. I love about this is you're making quite plain a key feature of the you know football analytics. And that is let's understand where luck is involved and it can have a huge influence on a game, but it shouldn't have much to do with how we predict will future will will perform and so you just do this you keep a running tab on this thing you've got one i think it just came out today or yesterday each week and you rack up the total you know games won or lost percentages won or lost this is the product of having a good win probability model and so it's a nice little you know it's, it's just example of the cumulative effect of good analytics we've got a good win probability model and now you can say okay 
because that thing happened on the play, the wind probably changed by this much. If it's what we've identified as a lucky play, then we can attribute that change in wind probability to luck. And just to run, I want to hear from you on breaking down these categories, but just you run a total from top to bottom of teams that have benefited the most. You're just saying these are events that happen on the field that are outside their control. And Green Bay, this was going, this was, did this include last night's game? Green Bay has plus 170%, meaning 1.7 wins um, in luck over the course of the first 14 weeks. And Minnesota, on the other end, almost perfectly symmetrical, minus 181%. And Buffalo, for example, a playoff contender, minus 100, one game loss due to games outside of their, due to events outside their control. Shane's trying to jump in. Shane. I love, I love this kind of win probability type calculation. And I think it's a great job. My, my question, I guess, is, is would the NFL ever consider doing this for helped by refs or like, you know, percent change due to uh, referee calls? Yeah. Um, so because you could do the exact think, same calculation. Yeah, that's that's a rhetorical, that, is that a rhetorical yeah. question, Shane? Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah. That that's uh, certainly not something uh, the NFL would publicize, just because you know that, that that's <laughs> an area that is very sensitive and, and obviously get, gets a lot of scrutiny. Um, so yeah, I, I don't I, I don't think that's something that we would do. Uh, but to, to, to talk more about the the luck dashboard. The yeah, we, I, I'm essentially the it was something that Michael Lopez and I, I thought about, and the goal is just to think about things like a dropped interception, where if your opponent is dropping interceptions, you keep throwing it right to them, and they drop it every time. That's you're you're not doing your job, but you're sort of benefiting from it. And similarly with drop passes and field goals, where if your opponents are routinely missing easy field goals or routinely making hard field goals. Um, that's that's uh, not something that you control, but you might benefit from or not. And, and fumble recovery is probably the, the big one, the most interesting one to me, where um, if, if you fumble the ball, um, you know, forcing fumbles or, or and holding on to the ball, that's something that a team can control. But whether or not the ball bounces to one team or another is typically pretty random. And we see it all the time on, on Sundays where you see the ball and it just bounces right to one team or bounces away from another. Um but yeah, it's it's one of the a cool thing that we we put together. Uh, the the thing that we we found. I mean, the first thing we checked when we did this was whether or not there's a correlation between, let's say, weeks one through eight and weeks nine through eighteen um, for for these teams, and, and there was essentially nothing at all. Like it, you had no chance at, at being at the top uh, in one week compared to the other. It, it was completely random, and it, it's things that teams can't control, but they, they benefit from. And uh, the main reason Green Bay is at the, the top, I think there was a, a game against the Chargers where the Chargers dropped a lot of passes. Um, and funny enough, I think the reason Minnesota's at the bottom was there was a game against the Chargers in which um, like several interceptions bounced right to them and, and, and whatnot. So um, it, it, it kind of was funny how that worked out. I've got a question for the team, and this, I think of it as an Audi question because it reminds me a little bit of some of the baseball analysis you've done. Is there some way we could adjust these charts, this this analysis, for actual wins and losses consequences? So, so in some ways, you kind of you might get lucky, but you positive luck, but you lost the game. Is that the way that it would work? And so it doesn't really count as positive luck because what we care about is that when, when loss records are deceiving essentially, and, and, yeah. and some of this won't contribute to the deception or some may even hide some of the deception. How's it going? It's like, can we translate this? Can we only keep the, the events that actually go in the direction of the game right. outcome? something like that? Can I just add a gloss on that? I, I think the issue is that, I mean, so 170.2, that might be 1.7 games, but most of that could happen in games they won. Right. So big deal or are they lost? And so there's a difference between on average over some long run. Yeah. But in the actual games, it's might not made a made an actual difference. And that's I think that's what you're trying to say. Yeah. Okay. And well, uh, in some cases it will. Some cases it won't. And so capturing- might, go Shane, you go might ahead. be kind of I, I actually because you I, I thought it, it's great to, that you were able to kind of see that, you know, things are uncorrelated. If you look at se- what first half of the season or second half. Are the actual kind of columns of this luck probability table uncorrelated? Because you'd kind of think also that, you know, the different types of luck shouldn't 
you know, like, or if there was a correlation between two different types of luck, why would that be? Yeah, I, I, and, and I guess the, the answer to that, I, I believe I did explicitly check that, and I, I think there was there was no correlation. Um, like, I, there, there isn't any, especially, uh, like, field goals and, and fumbles. Like, you, you wouldn't think there would be either. Like, the, those are sort of separate situations. But what, what you're saying is a really good point. Um, like, if a team, let's say, in a game they, they won, the opponent made the three 60-yard field goals against them. Did that really – is that the same as them losing off of a, a 60-yard field goal at the end of the game? Like, I think, for example, um, the, the Bills, they, they lost to the Eagles because the, um, the, the, the Eagles kicker made a 59-yard kick in, in rain – and cold uh, to send it to overtime. And that, that was unlucky, but the bills end up winning that game. Maybe, maybe that's different. Maybe. Yeah. I think you end up the, the simple heuristic would be only include those that go in the same direction as the game outcome. Something, something like that, that would take away yeah. some of the, no, that, that's a really good idea. How has this, I'm curious how this table's received, like what, what feedback do you get people who complain? Do people like it? Do they complain? Do they think you're being, <laughs> Geeky analyst, analyst guy, or like, what's what's the what's the reaction? You know, it's it's funny. I, I think it's typically, and I think last year Minnesota was close to the top of the list. Yeah. This year Minnesota's close to the bottom. I think the the funny takeaway I have is, I feel like this year I get a lot of Minnesota fans saying, "Oh, I, we were so unlucky." Like, I this this is exactly what I expected. And then last year was. Oh no, we're we're just actually good. This is this is I can't believe this chart is suggesting we're not as good as right. um, our record. So it, I think it, at least just from people who who respond, I I typically will see and just fans of of the game. Typically, I'll see people want their team to be at the bottom, meaning that they they dealt with all this BS, but they they still might be the record that they're at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, listen, Tom. Good, good fun talking to you. Thanks for making time for us. I want to pass along a suggestion that Shane made in the chat about our circle back to our overtime conversation. Shane says the proposal he likes is that the game ends when a team with the lead regains possession of the ball. This is a pretty sensible suggestion and a very you know simple practical way to go about it. It seems to me. Let's I mean, not go it, back it, to it. it. No, no, we've talked enough about the same. We got to go. Let's let Tom go. Tom, thanks for the thanks for the time, man. Keep up the great work. We love following you. Thank you. Thank you. Tom Bliss, football operations data scientist at the NFL. Fantastic follow on Twitter at Data with Bliss at Data with Bliss. That has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. Sixty minutes, a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM for the whole crew who were here for the whole time. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. What's the method that Adi is suggesting for telling us the optimal weight? Ah, okay. So let's assume we take the win-loss percentages, right, yep. of all the different um, owners, right? Yep. So now um, let's assume you assume it's beta distribution and you're going to solve for the two parameters, Match the moments, match the empirical distribution of the of the, what you've observed. So if you put, let's say, let's say Shane's suggestion is right that it's five seasons, 40-40. Well, we know what the mean's going to be, but maybe that variance is too small. So you got to match the empirical distribution. You're choosing the sample size. The bottom line is you have two parameters and let's call it a mean and a variance. It's two moments. So you're going to match the two. That's what empirical Bayes is going to do. It's going to choose the beta parameters to match the mean. We know the mean and the variance of the two of the distribution. As a matter of fact, the way the beta distribution is parameterized is A plus B, which is the sum of the two, which is the effective number of games, and A, let's say, which is the number of wins. That's what you do. You literally, it's just curve fitting. You literally fit the shape of the empirical distribution with the right values of A and B. That's it. And that's your prior. It's easy. It's easy. <laughs> Just for just a touch more clarification, there. Technically, you're getting a variance. You're you're, you're estimating the variance in the observed data. Yeah. And right. Then you use that precisely how to tell me how many games worth of prior to put into it. What's the translation from that to number of games? Well, so I mean, as Eric was saying, like basically, you've got a, a beta distribution. It's only got two parameters. 
and you have two essentially connected points here. Like, it's, oh, yeah, maybe Eric can describe it. So let's better. just say this is the uh, win percentage of the coaches. And this is this, this is the observed histogram. And so yep, yep, believe yep, it's yep. centered at a half. So um, I'm going to choose the beta distribution has two parameters, A and B. Here's the one thing I know. I'm going to choose A equals B because the mean is A over A plus B. So that's going to match a half if I choose A equals B. Now the question is, what should the sum of A plus B be? How big should it be? The bigger I make this sum, let's say I make A plus B equal to 1,000. Well, that's going to be a very yeah. tight distribution. It won't hold match on, hold on, hold on. Just remind me what, what the parameters A and B actually are in the beta so distribution. So the mean of the beta distribution, let's call it mu, is A over A plus B. Okay. So, you, can, so, a, a, you can interpret A as kind of the number of prior wins, wins and the number of, pr- and the number of, the number of prior, prior losses. losses. So if I make them both the same, then A over A plus B is a half. And I'm making mm-hmm. this up because I just don't remember. I think the variance is something like A over A plus B squared or something that's, like that. I think whatever. that's right, actually. Yeah, okay. something like that. Whatever the equation is. And so literally, as Shane said, this number I observe is 0.5. I'm making this other number up. Let's say it's 0.2. Well, I hate to say it, but I have two equations and two unknowns. And so I just solve for the A and B. And what's going to happen is when you solve for this, you're going to get an A hat and a B hat that is going to exactly match this empirically observed distribution. That's what empirical Bayes does. You literally fit the parameters of the prior that match the observed frequency distribution of the prior. Okay. And that's going to give you the, and you're saying that's the prior. So that I'm literally then going to assume that the prior on P is beta. And this is the non Bayesian part of it, a hat and B hat. And this is why Bayesians don't love empirical Bayes because we as, you know, Shane and I didn't learn to stick hat things into priors, <laughs> but that's what it means to say something's empirical Bayes. I'm going to use the data yeah. instead of us, you know, Shane and I would put priors on A and B and we'd grind out the whole thing. But no, an empirical Bayesian is going to find out the best estimate of A and B that matches the data and then stick it in and assume it's true for the rest of their life. And then the nice thing is, is that now, let's say uh, we observe Coach uh, Jensen, who's got X wins and Y losses. Well, then his total number of wins is X plus A hat. His total number of losses is Y plus B hat. And if I want to know P hat for Coach Jensen, it's just X plus A hat over X I'll even write it a better way, X plus Y, which is the observed total sample size, plus A hat plus B hat, which is the prior sample size. And that's where you get that shrinkage. Now it makes perfect sense. And And this is beautiful because it's closed form. There's no math. It's just, as Shane said, this is the prior wins. This is the prior losses. This is the observed wins. This is observed losses. Just add it up. And wins over wins plus losses is your estimate. And you're done. Okay, so just uh, to tie it back to some of the language that we were using before, the, these parameters of the beta are literally just, literally, as we're going to use them, number of games. And so whenever I use this- That's what I'm calling A plus yeah. B. Fictitious yeah. sample size is exactly that, Correct. because you, you, estimate, you've, you estimate these parameters in order to fit the observed distribution. And then once you've estimated the parameters, they give you directly, those parameters- are actually yeah. the sum of them is the sample size of the prior. That is correct. And then intuitively, you're basically you've got a certain number of games observed by an owner. For Josh Harris, it's you know 15, and yeah. for for J- Jerry Jones, it's whatever. Yeah, so maybe know, for Josh Harris, X is whatever the command, yeah. uh, commander's record. But maybe you're going to add X to each of these more. guys. You're going to add. You know, I'm going to say 160 games to well, the record. So it's going to greatly pull Josh Harris up. It's going to pull Josh Harris greatly up to 500. My P for Josh Harris might be like 83 over 92, assuming the commanders are 3 and 12 or whatever the hell their record is. I don't even know. 2 and 11 or 5 and 7. I don't know what they are, whatever. Yeah. Well, let me just tell you what happens to the rankings if you do add 10 years worth of data. You already calculated that out. That's cool. Yeah, Kraft is not moving because he's at the top so so far. But what happens, of course, is that the small sample guys at the top get pulled down and the small sample mm-hmm. guys at the bottom get pulled up. And one of the most consequential moves, for example, is Jeff Lurie, who we all think of as a great owner. He's the Eagles owner, of course. He's 10th in just raw ones and losses. He's 1268, lost 207. This is a large sample size, 0.56 win percentage. Once you, once you shrink 
those small sample size people above him. So for example, Gail Benson with the saints who's sitting up there at number two, but has fewer than a hundred games in a yeah. resume. Once you shrink those folks, Lurie pops up into the top five. So he so becomes is, a top five. This was Shane in my point. I, I bet you Lamar Hunt moves a lot. Or uh, not Lamar Hunt, uh, uh, the new Hunt. The, the, the new current case. Clark, Clark Hunt is number eight on the raw list. He's got, he's, got, he's got 260, 270 games under his belt. He doesn't move at all, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Think about as Art Rooney. Rooney is sitting up there at number three with only about 100 games under his belt. He drops to number seven once you regress everybody. Yeah. So, uh, so Shane, okay, uh, this is the thing that audience, uh, Shane, sorry, this is the thing, Kay, this is the thing that Shane and I objected to when Adi said this. Let's take an yeah. example where B has just an observed higher win rate than A. This person's won seven out of 10 games. They're seven and three. This person's, you know, um, 250 and 150. Well, 70% is bigger than 250 out of, uh, out of 400. But when I shrink it, there's a reversal. B gets shrunken heavily back to a half. So now A is better than B. And that's exactly what Shane and I were saying to Adi. That's not true. If the sample sizes are different, you absolutely can get yeah, I, I, points. Yeah, I think he, he mis- either get. misspoke or didn't no, understand. No, he was, thinking about, he was thinking about domains where everyone's got the same number of games. But what you yeah. can't get paid is B can't go from this side of a half to this side yeah, of a half. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's not going to flip to from exactly. one side to the other. Yeah. But it's it's it makes shrinkage even more relevant. It's most relevant when you have different sample sizes. The relevance yes. when you have the same sample yes. size is that it pulls in the yes. extreme forecast. That's you the nice get, thing. You that, still get everything shrunken in, but the rank ordering yeah. doesn't change. Yeah. yeah. 